Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Jarek Show. I'm Javad Malik. We have got an action-packed episode for you that Glenn A. Larson would be jealous of. We are covering stories about um, the Kiev police having uh, an unexpected bonus. We've got some bikes for sale, and we have a very, very special guest. That's all today on The Jarek Show. Welcome to The Jarek Show, featuring your hosts, Javad Malik and Eric Krohn. Timely topics, poorly presented. Mr. Krohn, hello to the show again, as always. How Glad you doing? to be here. It's, a, it's another wonderful week. We get to cover some more stuff. And we have a truly cool, awesome guest on here who we've been talking to before, and she is just awesome. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Yes. She is someone who who uh, joined security when in London, uh, although originated from a, a country that no longer exists, apparently, uh, but now resides up in north in Scotland. Please welcome uh, a security and privacy. I will call her an expert. She's far too modest to refer to her as an expert, but please welcome Magda de Jager, or Mags, as I like to call her. <laughs> welcome to the show. Well, my best friend called me Mags. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Cool. Lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, how, how's the weather up in Scotland? Beautiful. Um, as you can see behind me, I, I had to close the curtains, but it's sunshine just streaming in, waiting for us to go outside and enjoy the lovely weather. I didn't know that happened in Scotland. I thought it was always like, Overcast and haggis, isn't that kind of what Scotland's about? Uh, no, we have fantastically beautiful sunny days for about three days a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And those are the days that Nessie never shows up, right? It's always got to be overcast and crappy for that. Uh, well. Yeah. She likes her mist. I think it's because of the water. She doesn't like the dry sun and sunny type weather. So when it's really misty and cool, that's when she comes out. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So, Javad, what kind of stories do you have for us this week? We have got some uh, zingers of stories this week. Ukrainian police, apparently it was their end of year and they had to make up some um, shortfall in their budget. So they they uh, went uh, on a raid um, uh, with in a joint operation and they and they raided 21 buildings and homes near Kiev. Uh, who they claim were uh, connected to the clock ransomware. Uh, so they clipped clock. Um, and th there's some really Gosh, good pictures. I nearly, I nearly thought that's a clap. That's a very different type of <laughs> ransomware. Yeah, it takes I... something else to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not the police. The police can't do that. But look, there, there's all these fancy cars that, that you see them, them towing. And uh, that they're apparently proceeds of crime. But um, I think this is this is really good because we we've seen a lot of ransomware go on, and frankly, a lot of people haven't seen enough retaliation by the authorities. So um, we're seeing a few more of these inc instances happening. Um, Eric, do you think enough is going on? Is this enough to deter those criminals? You know, it is interesting that we have seen so much more law enforcement stuff involved in this. You know, we've seen a couple of groups shut down. What was it? Ziggy gave out all the passwords because they were afraid of uh, law enforcement going after them. And, you know, it's interesting because I'll be honest, I don't I'm not really familiar with the Klopp group. OK, um, it's not one that I've heard of before, but they say they've done a whole lot of damage. Half half a billion dollars in damage, I think, uh, is what they said. Five hundred million up there towards the top. So, I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of, of things happening there. Yeah. Um, estimated uh, 500 million. Now, it's kind of nice to see the police come in and, you know, they raided the cars, um, apparently $185,000. And then, you know, for the police departments, by the time they get that $165,000 back over to the police department, and then that $105,000 out to the, the public to help do restitution, um, it's very, very nice that people are going to see part of that $65,000 back. Um, you know, it, it, this kind of stuff, though, needs to happen more and more often. And I love the fact that, uh, you know, the Ukrainian police, which we don't hear about doing a whole lot of good stuff with, with respect to this, um, was working with South Korea. 
in order to do this. So we're, we're starting to see that kind of crossing the borders where we're getting more and more, um, you know, working together. And, and I think that's great. I think we need to see a lot more of it. Yeah. I'm just wondering, looking at all of, you know, stuff that they recovered and all of those very fancy cars, people are clearly paying these ransoms. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's happening all over the place. I mean, ransoms are, are definitely being paid. Sometimes not the ones that we see on TV, um, but you know, a lot of them are done. And, and the other thing that happens too, that's kind of interesting. And I didn't mean to cut you off Javad, but I did. Um, <laughs> the other thing that happens is sometimes organizations pay companies to help them recover from ransomware. And that, company they pay actually goes out and pays the ransom. That's how they do it uh, to help get their data back. Yeah, there, there's a big industry now. There's uh, ransomware negotiators that are put in place, like you alluded to. There are incident response people in place. There are these uh, cyber insurance providers that are there. And, and that's why we've heard instances where the insurance companies have been um, attacked by, um, by these criminals and they've obtained lists of all their customers and how much they're insured up to. And then they've gone after those customers and demanded ransom just below the full amount of which they're, they're actually um, insured up to. So there, there is a lot of money. Even, even from last year's RSA, there was a, a talk given by the FBI where they showed how much money they were tracking in various Bitcoin wallets belonging to different ransomware groups. And some of them were making like north of 50 million dollars so uh, a year so you know it's it's a big money big industry and that's depressing thanks for bringing that story to our attention eric it's good that they're doing something right it's not that depressing all right so it's let's not see that. what else we got yeah, next up for all you fitness nerds uh <laughs> clearly not not something that's directed towards me but um if you have a, one of those Peloton bikes, researchers at McAfee are saying you could be dun, 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 hacked. Um, and uh, when I first saw this, it's and, and you see the headline here, uh, was vulnerable to remote hacking researchers fight. And you're like, this is terrible. Uh, Biden has got one apparently in the White House. Uh, Russians are probably listening in on everything he's saying. But um, when you read the article, actually, you need physical access to the bike. You need a USB to plug it in. I mean, underlying it's just an Android system, but you need root app, you need physical access. You need to plug it in. You need to upload your, your firmware and then you go away and then remotely you can access the, the camera, the microphone and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, if, if I broke into someone's house and I was like, what's the best thing that I can infect? Uh, the cycle isn't top of my list. Well, well, actually, maybe for that reason, it should be top of the list. Um, I don't know. Mags, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, I think it's it's good that researchers do these things and they need to research the products because uh, we've definitely seen some great stories come out and we've definitely seen companies, you know, be alerted to things and fix things. But this is just a bit lazy. I don't know if it's lazy researchers or lazy reporting, probably a little bit both. Because as you say, if you have physical access, I mean, what's worse, someone hacking your bike and making you bike faster or um, hitting you on the back of the head and putting you in a coma? You know, if they've got physical access, those are the options, really. Yeah, you know, physical access is everything. Once you have physical access, it's all over with. And and you brought up something that made me think here real quick. And that was, what if they gained access to the bike? And while you're cycling, they upped your program to the point that people like uh, maybe had a heart attack and died, right? This could actually turn into something kinetic. All right, this is dangerous, folks. We need to have these top level, um, you know, vulnerable to remote hacking headlines here. <laughs> and, and to your point, Max, you're right. Uh, I don't know if this was was the researchers or just the way that Gizmodo put it out there. But when we see headlines like this, it, it actually does damage, right? So so we see this stuff and then you read into it and you find out that somebody has to crawl through your window or get in your house and plug this thing in and upload an image and do all this kind of crap in order to do it, right? But you know, the general public or other people don't know that. And so what happens is we hear all of these stories like this that are 
um, exaggerated a little bit. And I think it kind of makes people a little turned off to it. And, you know, we start just getting used to it. It, it, it desensitizes us to th to the things that could be really serious. Yeah, there's definitely that breach fatigue, you know, headline fatigue, where you just go, well, you know, last week it was this thing, next week's going to be that thing. It's all over. What do I care? I'll just buy it anyway. And that's not what we want. We want people to to take, you know, a critical look at the things that could really be harmful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you want to give someone something practical that they can do or should do. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if all you do is walk away thinking, oh, here's another product that is crap. Why do I have it in my house? Why do I have my Alexa in the house? You know, because it's it's so vulnerable. Then, you know, you, people, like you said, people are just going to go apathetic and they're not going to care. And actually, I, I have a conspiracy theory here. There is a coordinated uh, hit campaign against Peloton as a company. So you had this a few weeks ago. There was uh, some article about their treadmills being dangerous. Uh, where where the screen could come off and and hurt someone. I think there was one unfortunate incident where a toddler um, came underneath it um, and died. And I've gone and depressed us all again. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Travel and retail industries facing wave of credential stuffing attacks. What's that all about, Eric? Yeah, so you know, I actually brought this up just for just for the purpose of, of bringing attention to credential stuffing, because you know I talk about it a bit in my talks. Um, but credential stuffing is is really a big issue out there, and credential stuffing is basically where somebody takes um, known username and password from one place, um, and then because we're human and we've decided that reuse is the way to go. Um, they turn around and they apply that or, or try that on other things. So let's say, you know, I always, I, I use the uh, the knitting forum example. So my knitting forum gets hacked and they end up taking all these passwords because it's poorly secured. It's not encrypted, right? So they're going to take that. They're going to take my username and password from there and they're going to try it on Amazon. They're going to try it on banks. They're going to try it in all these other places to try to get in. And lo and behold, a lot of times it works for them. It, it works very well. Now, in this case, they're talking about purchasing credentials, which sometimes, you know, on the dark web, you can get just bundles of credentials for, for next to nothing. They're talking about verified ones here. And they said that they run from like $50 to $1,000 for verified credentials. Um, some of those are from Netflix, Netflix accounts, uh, PayPal, things like that, that they can use for scams and other ways to attack other people. Um, but ultimately, credential stuffing is a big deal. And it's something that we in security really need to take very seriously and we need to educate people on why it's so dangerous and why using a password manager and having unique passwords for every service is so important. Alex, do you re reuse the same password across multiple websites? No, I started using a password manager a number of years ago, <laughs> but actually, you know, because my password manager does have uh, one of those, you know, check, run a health check on your stuff kind of thing. And every time it kind of comes up, I'm like, oh, I've got, I don't have time to look at this now. <laughs> I don't know how many of those. So what I used to do before I used my password manager is I used to classify, you know, I'm all about the risk assessment. I used to classify my accounts. So banking always had unique, strong, hectic passwords. Then I had like the online shopping and then I had the newsletter bits, you know, which was like, who cares about that? No one cares about that. Mm -hmm. And they were all the same. Um, but it, as you say, credential stuffing is such a big thing. My my other half actually got a uh, notification yesterday or the day before from from uh, our friends over at, uh, at a Have I Been Pawned. Um, from, I'm trying to remember the service's name now. I can't. I think it's Scout or something ridiculous. I had never heard of this, clearly. I'm far too young uh, because this was taken over by SoundCloud. Mm. Okay. But that service, clearly the credentials still somewhere uh, existed on the internet and he still has the same email address. So if yeah. he'd used that for any other thing, I don't know, what are we talking about? 20 years ago, credential stuffing could still affect him right today. 
Well, we've seen this leveraged in different ways too. There was that um, the round of emails that was going around. There were phishing emails that said, uh, you know, we got into your computer, we turned on your webcam while you were at a, you know, a, a porn site. We recorded you. If you don't pay us, uh, we're gonna, you know, dump this out there. And by the way, just to show you that we we really were in your system, we know that your password is this. And they used a ten-year-old LinkedIn breach to get those passwords. And they were real passwords, but they were 10 years old. And a lot of people freaked out because they're like, oh my gosh, they have my password, you know? <laughs> Although you probably should change your password more than once every 10 years. Um, that brought up a whole different level of things. But they use that in a different way. And that was to, you know, make this more, um, more realistic seeming. So it's not just a matter of, of necessarily getting into other things, but in a social engineering circle, that's a fantastic way to try to get people a little bit more disturbed than they already were. Although just bringing it slightly back to the article, when we were talking about the travel industry, a lot of the times those credentials um, or, or, or the way that they, they do this is, is not about physical money. It's about your loyalty accounts and the points that you have and the kind of benefits you get, which I feel always disadvantages the organization more than it does the individual. Because as an individual, you're kind of thinking, well, I've not lost any cash. I've maybe lost a few benefits, but hey, it's just points. So the company can give them back to me. It's not a problem. But for the company, of course, that, that's, that's money out the door. Um, the, the points don't really matter because what the criminals do is they use those points to book rewards, book flights, book hotels, you know, whatever, or then get refunds so that they actually get the cash out. So for the organizations, this is a, is a this is one where it's far more difficult, far, um, has more, comp uh, excuse me, has more effect on the organization than it does on the individual, which is also an interesting dynamic because it's the individual's password. Yeah, also, I mean, in those accounts, there's password numbers, there's, you know, all kinds of very sensitive type information. If somebody wanted to start stealing identities, that, that info's in there too, right? Javad, I assume you have your passwords in, in your accounts when you travel over here, right? You've got to put that stuff in there. Yes, I do. And so it's, it's an interesting one. I, you know, I, I think this is one of those, Max, you make a really interesting point about who the victim is. Normally, it's the user that's a victim, but in, in these cases, it, it is the organization. Um, so there is obviously the the onus on the user to protect it, but also, if, you know, we can't, we need organizations to be more serious in how they provide authentication. And maybe for certain organizations, you know, passwords just aren't good enough. Maybe they do need to implement some sort of multi-factor authentication or passwordless technology or something like that, or, or have better controls in place uh, to to prevent it. So so I think it's it's one of those things that you know that the problem is that when you take any problem, any challenge you have, and if you give that challenge to an engineer, they will reframe that problem as an engineering problem and they will present you an engineering solution. And this is what we tend to do in security. We, we look at passwords as purely or authentication, should I say, as a security problem. And then we always try to frame a security solution to it. And, and I think we need to, as an industry, involve other industries like, you know, who are better versed in like user experience or, or behavior, behavior science in how to design something that is not only secure, but is also usable and, and convenient and intuitive. Uh, for for the use. <laughs> excuse me, I'm not breaking up and crying. I'm just half coughing. <laughs> Thank you so much. This authentication means so much to me. I'm, I'm really sorry. But I, I totally agree. It's one of the you know we often talk about, and I almost hate using the phrase about shifting left. And we always try and get in early on the development side. But this is even earlier. This is in product design phase, right? It's talking to your product owners and your customer experience people, and your UX people about that whole journey. And a lot of times it can be framed as a benefit to the customer, you know, rather than a barrier to entering credentials or, you know, difficulty accessing what they need to access. But actually, hey, this is, you know, important to us to keep your information secure and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that puts a nice bow on that story. 
So ladies and gentlemen, do not forget, you can also find us on an audio podcast. The jerickshow.podbean.com is where we upload, but it gets indicated to all your favorite uh, podcast apps. You can follow us on Twitter at The Jerick Show, or you can follow us individually on The Jerick Show uh, at Javad or at Eric Crone. And uh, obviously our wonderful guest, Mags, uh, Mags DJ is the Twitter ID to follow. Did I do that well, Eric? I'm always proud of you when you remember to do that part. <laughs> um, I'm even more proud of this than when you remember to hit record. <laughs> anyway, now's the point where we segue to the key uh, person on the, on the call today, uh, our, our wonderful guest, Max. Um, you've been here. You know, we we haven't even touched on your on your accent yet. So you um, live in Scotland, yeah. but that's not a Scottish accent, is it? It's not, no. <laughs> I don't think any Scottish person would agree with it, no. Definitely <laughs> not a Scottish accent. I originally am from South Africa, although I've lived in the UK for more than a decade now. So I understand that my accent is mellowed somewhat. Sometimes people struggle to place it. It's like, it's not, it's not quite British, but it might be, you know, they're not too sure. Um, but, you know, if I, if I really wanted to, I can prove to you that I'm like a proper South African. <laughs> Where are the subtitles? <laughs> so uh, there's there's someone on, um, oh, where is it? It's on the Twitter, and I can't remember her name right now. It's like Miss Purdy Penny or something like that, and she does the, the Scottish word of the day. I don't know if you've ever seen her. Um, but that's a whole different language. I have no idea what's going on with this. And, and even when they have the subtitles and, and they're spelling it out, I can tell it, it's some sort of English-ish, but the way it's pronounced, I got no idea how that comes together. So um, yeah, thank you for being easy to understand. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Cool, cool. So, so let's start from the beginning then. Uh, how did you find yourself in security? Is this something you, you studied for? Is this something you, you were working in in South Africa before you reached the UK? Uh, not at all. It, it was entirely by accident. Uh, I didn't even really know it was a career. Um, as a matter of fact, I wanted to go and study musical theatre uh, when I finished school. That, that was my main objective in life. I've always been a dancer in some way, shape or form, and musical theatre was really the thing. Something happened, I won't go into the details, but I ended up studying accounting um, at university. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I hesitate to say a qualified accountant, because I have a degree in accounting and I'm actually part qualified ACCA as well. I've never worked as an accountant a day in my life. I pay an accountant to do my accounting work. <laughs> so please do not rely on me for any accounting advice. But I then went on to specialize in internal auditing where I got the fantastic designation CIA. So I'm, I'm actually allowed to write the letter CIA and I can see the American shaking his head. <laughs> uh, I am allowed to use those letters. I often don't. <laughs> because it are, a lot of questions are asked. Yeah, I saw that in your LinkedIn profile and immediately I was like, I think I'm gonna sit this one out, Javad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is kind of funny though. Um, that, that, that really did stand out to me. I was like, wow, and, and you got your CISSP um, and all of that kind of good stuff, right? Uh, the question is, do you have your card with you, right, Javad? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta be able to show your card real quick. Um, he he's done a couple of videos around that that were absolutely fantastic. Um, the CIWSP yeah. video uh, with that group whose name we won't mention on this show, uh, but he's a sole founder of it. Uh, there's been some awesome stuff with that. So, anyways, yeah. sorry, total segue. There. I actually do know where that is, just because <laughs> I was I had to fill in some very important form yesterday, and I had to like go through all my documentation. So it's it's right there in a box somewhere. Nice. Nice. All right. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad. I, I, and this is a whole different topic for, for a whole different conversation. But I, I always like to say, you know, as I've just proven to you, I'm a qualified accountant. I really can't do any accounting. So the link between being good at writing exams, and actually being able to do the job, we, we can talk about that for hours later mm. on. 
So, so yes, so I am a certified internal auditor um, and that was the main qualification that allowed me to come to the UK, uh, where also to get a visa to come and work in the UK, I had to prove that I could speak English. So in case there is any doubt on that, I also have a certificate that proves that I am able to speak and listen and write in English. Wow, I thought I had wow. a lot of certs. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I arrived in the UK and continued with internal auditing work. Um, and then I, I was in a company where there was, actually it was unique to me at the time, but I've been in a role, different jobs since. And it seems to be the thing for all companies where, you know, when someone tell you, oh, the only thing that really stays constant here is change. Change is the name of the game. Things are always changing. But that was the organization where that was really happening. Um, I was basically in the same team working with the same people for about three years. And I had like five different job titles. Wow. And the one I ended up with kind of asked after the last reorganization shifting of things around. It was one where I had this job title and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I sat down at my desk and I'm like, so what do I do then? <laughs> <laughs> I would have conversations with my boss and we discuss my work and it was all kind of strategic and I, I could see what that was but then I'd get back to my desk and I'm thinking so what do I do now <laughs> it was it was just I just didn't feel you know the, the role just didn't end up suiting me I wasn't really too sure what I was doing so I was looking around for for other opportunities um, internal and external my boss Kind of, he knew, you know, you could see from our chats that this is this, she, she's worried. She's not too sure what she's doing. Um, and a recruiter contacted me about a role which was in information security. Uh, and I read the job spec and went, this sounds awesome. <laughs> like I could totally date this. Gonna be amazing. Absolutely wanna apply for the job. Absolutely have no experience. So I talked to the recruiter about that. And she she had quite a close relationship with the, the company that was hiring the hiring manager at the time. Um, and the post had been vacant for a while. I think the hiring manager had kind of been burnt in the past. So it was really taking time to suss things out and hire the right person culturally rather than someone that necessarily had the qualifications on paper. So, so I went for it uh, and I applied. It was quite an arduous process. I think the whole hiring process took over six months. I went for about four interviews, one of which they also literally made me write a test, not quite a test, but they gave me a report and said, you will be getting this report in your job every month, go through it, review it, give me some notes. And then left me alone in a room for an hour and came back to discuss the results, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, and I'll be forever fake, uh, thankful to, to Victoria Brinkley because she gave me that opportunity and she said, I like the way you think. You might not have the experience, but I like the way you problem solve and I like the way you apply that thought process. We can teach you the security stuff, but I like the way you think about problems. And um, so I did, jumped into it, uh, very quickly realized that I really need to sharpen up on my security knowledge. So I started looking around for what can I possibly do? Um, that's how I started going to, to conferences where I met the lovely Mr. Malek, uh, who ended up having a cup of tea with me one day and just gave me a list of, you know, talk to these people, go to these conferences, go to these events. This is good. These are podcasts to listen to. And it was just all about kind of sponging up knowledge as far as possible. Also then came across at the, uh, the, the masters in, uh, at Royal Holloway, the masters in cybersecurity there, which is quite well known in the UK. They were apparently the first one. There's so many other uh, others out there now, but at the time that, that was pretty much the one. So I started on that. That's the one I never finished though, should be honest about that. Don't actually have a master's degree. <laughs> because again, I did the exams all in a year, two years, two years I did all the exams. That was never a problem. Uh, I'm quite good at writing exams, but writing the dissertation and thesis and, mm. you know, moving houses and having kids and it, it just didn't work out. You know, but I, sorry. Oh, well, I just, I noticed, you know, you, you mentioned something that, that I key in on because I, I see this and I hear this so much in our industry where we can't get security people. Security people are so expensive, so hard to get, such a shortage, blah, 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 blah. Every year, IST Squared puts out their, oh my gosh, we need more security professionals mm -hmm. um, report. 
But then we don't look at the people that would make absolutely wonderful security professionals that we have internally or maybe externally. And I got to say, I love the outlook of that, uh, the individual that hired you, that, you know what, I, we can teach you security. It's your thought process that we care about. And, you know, on the flip side, very often I get people that come to me that go, I want to get into information security, but I can't seem to get through, you know, the door. It's like, yeah. I can't get started. I know someone just uh, just ended up graduating with a degree in, uh, um, uh, it, it was a security, or uh, what was it? Security degree, not InfoSec, but like a security degree um, and a, a focus on Homeland Security, right? And they're like, I can't even get a job. I can't even get an interview, um, even with this bachelor's degree. But we complain so much that there aren't people available. We don't look internally in our own organizations and say, hey, you know what? These people already have a good mindset. I wonder if they're interested in being on our security team, right? We always seem to be going outward and, and getting recruiters to go chase these people down and pay a ton. So I, I love that that they thought that way about you and that they gave you the opportunity for that. Cause I think we need to do that so much more. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, and, and I'm now, you know, in a position where I hire teams as well. And it's something that I often think about, like, how can we write our job specs? Cause it's a combination of how do you write it? Um, where do you advertise? Cause if you're just advertising on the bog standard or the, the you know, ISC squared websites or whatever, you're gonna get the same type of people. Um, but also absolutely looking internally, I think some of the best hires I've had have been recommendations and networking. And in a way I hate saying that um, because when, when I was a lot younger, I hated the idea of networking. I was always adamant that I will get there on my own merits. If I prove that I've done the good work, it'll happen but it's just not quite the reality. Now, networking doesn't have to be daunting, you know, just getting involved in your communities because often it's not, it's not the type of, it's not nepotism. It's not that I know someone and I'm gonna give them that job, whether they can do it or not. It's, um, it, it's being available when opportunities come knocking at your door and it's being available in all those places where the opportunities could potentially be. And it's not just one job website, you know. It's going to be very different places. And I think people are more likely to apply for jobs when they see either job or the hiring manager or the company recommended by someone that they trust. You know, not only the other way around, but also companies that they trust. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I think this is one of those things where there's the there's sometimes you work with someone, so you recommend them based on what you've seen, but other times you recommend people because you might not have seen them work, so you don't know what exactly they're like day to day, but you've interacted with them and you know culturally they'll be a good fit. And, you know, it's then up for the hire to work out whether they technically they know, you know, exactly what they're after. But um, but I think that this is another part when you just network with people, you just get, you know, it, it doesn't need to be a daunting process. Like you said, it just needs to be let's have a cup of tea with someone or let's just chat with someone in the hallway while we're waiting for the next session to start. And you just get a feel of like, hey, that's someone who I might like to work with or I might recommend other people work with if ever the opportunity arose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, I think I've, I've covered the because it all grew. You know, the rest, as they say, is history. I got my first job in InfoSec and I, I've just never looked back. Um, absolutely love it. For me, the difference between internal audits. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I became an internal auditor because I felt like I was gonna change the world and I was gonna help people. <laughs> Anybody who's ever been an auditor of any sort or work with auditors knows that that's not quite true. <laughs> so this is really interesting. Like very much. You know, for someone and, that's so interesting and outward and bubbly and friendly, you chose accounting and internal audit, two of the most hated and boring professions on the face of the earth. I mean. You just need to become a, a, a trained lawyer to make it the full trifecta effect and you, you'll be done. Yeah, it was clearly sold to me uh, tremendously because the same thing happened. I then walked into security and went, you know what? Here, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to help people and I'm going to change the world. You know, I think we actually 
so maybe I'm naive. I've only been doing this for a long time, but I actually still feel that way. I, I think that we actually can have an impact on the world, even if it's not in like a major way. Like I'm not going to go fix the internet, right? Um, but I may be able to get other people interested in this career that are going to go out and, and incrementally help secure organizations, get people's mindsets in the right way, things like that. I think that's incredibly important. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing other people excel um, as they grow in this and seeing the things that they end up doing. People that I've worked with for a long time or known for a long time. Um, that's really rewarding for me. And I do think we can make a difference. No, we're not going to stop everything right now. It's not going to be something like that. But how much worse would it be if it wasn't for people like, you know, and I, I'm not saying just me, but people with this mindset, helping people, you know, lift them up and move into these careers. Uh, we we really can make a difference. Eric, one thing is that when, when we speak about the world, we mean the world. When you say the world, you just mean uh, North America. So there's a big difference there. So somewhere other than here matters? <laughs> now, I'm not that American, okay, Mags. I, you got to understand. I, I, I've, I've had my mindset opened uh, a little bit by Javad and and my other foreign colleagues. Um, I realize there are other places than America, less yeah, important, cool. but other places. That's good growth from a boy who came from Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice. Max, have you seen that that uh, Borat show um, where he um, <sighs> make make America great again, or, or what was it called? I don't um, even remember. That was terrible. I, it was that short show, and he had you know he plays these different characters, and he goes to this little town in Arizona. It's like proper, like you know what you'd expect a, a, a very stereotypical one of these small towns to be. Tumbleweeds going by in the street. Yeah. <laughs> people with no teeth, you know, all that kind of thing. And they're there and he's like, oh, his character's there. So how would you like a, a $2 billion investment? And everyone's like, yay. He's like, okay, we're going to build the biggest mosque in the world outside of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and everyone's like, what? <laughs> and um, yeah, there were some of Eric's relatives were in the audience over there. It was just... Let's not go there. Okay. You know better. But yeah, actually that, that whole video was a little scary because he was doing it in person. And didn't, didn't they tell him something like, if it goes bad, hold your clipboard up and, and hide yeah. behind your clipboard or something? They, like they, they put Kevlar in his clipboard or something. So it would be bullet resistant. And they said, they just anyway, we digress. You know what, though, Javad, that, that actually, that's actually important because, frankly, um, that's a matter of people being educated and aware of things around them, which is something that's really important because we see, even in our in our security area, we see people with very myopic views. They, they don't necessarily um, broaden their mind to think about other things, too. So while that is a really bad example of this sort of thing, honestly... I think a lot of people are guilty of that same sort of thing when it comes to, you know, the rest of the world as well and, and security, especially. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, for me, you know, I always try and be helpful. Uh, I always go in with the, the words of, you know, how can I help? How can I make the situation better? And not a lot of people in security do think like that, definitely. But there are some that don't. And I see that in the organization, you know, someone who I've just had maybe a random chat with, or I've been able to help them with a different problem. And then I get an email yesterday saying, oh, this email looks a bit dodgy to me. I'm not, I wasn't sure who to contact. So I thought I'd ask you. And I love that because that's, you know, what you were talking about before. That's how you influence people um, to just make them think about my world that I live in. They don't have to be security experts. I'm not expecting that of anybody I work with or my friends and my family. But if it opens their mind a little bit just to, to have that second thought and that third thought and maybe pick up the phone and ask me a question, that makes my day. And I think that's important. The whole I'm willing to pick up the phone and ask you a question part. For so long as security professionals, we we get that, you know, uh, Javad's done his department of no talk, right? Um, but we're also known for not necessarily being the mo most personable people, right? We're not the ones that get invited to parties a lot. Um, and we just, you know, that that is that. But that makes people afraid to answer, you know, to pick up the phone and say, 
I'm probably going to waste their time. They, they talk themselves out of it using that. So if you're supportive and you go, you know what? No, that's not a big deal, but thanks for asking. And, you know, this is what I would look at. Just it doesn't have to be anything in depth. Then they feel comfortable doing that. And, and that's a good thing. That's something we need to be striving for more. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like marketing. You you got to think about the the long term. Um, it, it's what they say. Altruism is basically long term selfishness. You you give away stuff for free for a long time, in the hope that one day it it pays back. And when you know, obviously it's it's uh, abused a lot in by by companies trying to sell you stuff. But in terms of building trust, that's what we we really need to focus on more. I think is. How do we give away stuff? How do we make ourselves approachable? How do we give people something for free where they don't feel like it's a quid pro, pro quo agreement that we want something in return immediately? So here, I'm going to give you this. And now next week, I'm going to come and test you on this. So, you know, rather than that, if we if we focus on building those relationships over a long, long time, then that that is something that I think will, will really pay dividends. And it's something I, I, I find quite encouraging in the industry. We see more and more of that being recognized, moving away from the hardcore, just it's a technology problem. Therefore, we will fix it with my elite technology. But rather than, uh, it, you know, making it more about a human problem and a relationship problem that we need to solve. Wow. Insightful. Yeah, I mean, that's so deep. I'm just sitting here. You know, that's why it's quiet. It's not because we don't have anything else to think about. I it's know. It's in, in just insightful um, thoughts and things he dumps out there on us. See, I have two two modes, cussing Eric or deep insight. So it's you're going to get one of the two at any given point in time. True story, true story. So uh, let me ask you, what is your favorite thing about being an InfoSec? Oh, the people. Um, really the communities that I have been so gratefully accepted into, um, both when I lived in London, the, the people I met around there through your various conferences and so on. And when I moved to Scotland, that was the first thing because I realized I needed a job locally. I was still commuting to my job in London uh, a couple of days a week, uh, which isn't ideal, especially when you have a young family. Um, but I, so I needed another job and I knew I needed to build a network to find more opportunities. So the first thing I did is, you know, check out whether they had conferences and they had a B-Sides, which led me to Cyber Scotland Connect, which led me to people before I knew I was part of the like organizing uh, committee type stuff. Um, but it, it's the people and the, those that's the group of people that I still contact and I go, I got a problem at work. Is anybody up for, for a coffee or, you know, just and, and the people do people who are like CISOs and very senior just take time out of the day to just bounce ideas around with me. Um, and and that, that that's how we all succeed because, you know, I'm always a risk person. People who look the same, think the same, went to the same school, speak the same language, will find the same answers to problems. The only way you're gonna change that is to have diversity, diversity in gender, in experience, in education, in everything. And that's what I, I find with those people when I have a problem at work because I'm only looking at problems from my own perspective and my unique experiences. The moment you share that with two or three other people with different experiences, it's like a whole new world of solutions opens up for you. So sometimes I think that's super great advice. And sometimes people ask and, and that, well, I've reached out to someone on LinkedIn and they didn't respond to me. Or I tried to ask, or oh, they they must be too busy for me or something. Is this something in the way that you make the ask that makes it more relevant? Like, do you put specifically, I want to talk to you about X, Y, and Z? Or do you just say, hey, I just want to pick your brain or let me buy you coffee? So it depends on the relationship you've already built. So, and, that, and that's networking, right? Um, mm -hmm. Networking isn't going in with an ask. Networking is just, I want to get to know you better. And then maybe three or four, six months or two years down the line, you have a specific ask. So with the kind of close-knit um, community in, in CSC, I would just ask them um, direct. Because I say, I, I think it's just the community there. People are a lot closer and someone will always answer. If you're kind of going cold of someone you might not know that well on LinkedIn, um, be specific about why you're asking them. 
you know, because that's, again, a bit of marketing there. It's flattering. If someone says, hey, I've seen your previous work or your tweets on privacy, or actually, I've seen your tweets, and I think you're just really funny, and therefore I want to ask your opinion because I think you'd be able to help me. You know, something that makes it personable, that's also quite clear. You're not a bot. Hmm. If you're, I think anybody who's been on LinkedIn for longer than two minutes, um, you know, you get a lot of messages sometimes. Yeah, LinkedIn is kind of my scourge uh, in certain ways. Like the fastest way to get un unconnected or disconnected with me on LinkedIn is to have your first uh, interaction with me or message with me, something like, hey, I saw you, da, 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 da. How would you like to buy this? And so often it's like, that's what it's for. You know, it's the immediate yeah. lead in. I don't even answer those anymore. I'm just like, boom, kill the connection. Cause there's so many of them out there and, and it does get hard. I mean, I'll talk to anybody on LinkedIn about anything I can help them with, quite frankly, as long as they're not going to try, you know, it's not the initial trying to sell me stuff. And the bots are funny too. Cause I can't tell you how often I get something going, Hey, how would you like some uh, cybersecurity training? You would be a perfect candidate for CISSP. Well, yeah, I've already got that one. <laughs> like, I've, you know I've been down that road. What's the point? You know, um, it, yeah. the social stuff has gotten kind of ugly. But if you can get through some of that, and like you said, if I think if you can add a little personal something to it, so it doesn't sound like it's just a cold call to try to get you to buy something, I think that's that's a really good point that when you make that reach out, um, make it sound like you know what what they're what they're about at least a little bit. And and time, of course, you know, give people time to respond. Don't say, oh, I've got this, you know, um, thing due on Saturday, and I really need your help right now. And if I can't do it tonight, it's going to be terrible. Because you know, we read all the other articles about burnout, about how to manage your time, about all the socials. You know, switch off your notifications. So. I don't have notifications switched on on a lot of stuff. So I, I will check messages and I will get there, but it won't be immediate. <laughs> you know, we sometimes forget that. It's like we have, well, it, it's instant communication. You're always available, but the advice is to never be always available. But then people get upset if you're not always available. So, you know, I, well. Well, I think over here, ways. over here in the US, um, I think all of that notification turning off stuff is not available. Um, they just don't give it to us Americans yeah. <laughs> uh, because because we just, you know, we talked about this, I think, in the last episode, Javon, yes. <laughs> right? We we don't shut down. And I'm not trying to, you know, but it's a, it's a true thing, you know, and, and like Javon knows, I'm I, I'm going on vacation here in a couple of weeks and I am just scratching, clawing my way to that. And I'm actually going to go dark. And I've warned people that I'm going to go dark because a lot of people, when we go on vacation, they're like, hey, how's it going? And they still want a response in 10 minutes. Not going to happen this time um, because it's so easy to burn out in this. It really is. And we're not in like the trenches every day anymore either, but it's still exhausting. There's so much information. There's so much going on. There's so much stress and so much just looking around and seeing bad things. And if you think about the world we live in as security professionals, we live in the middle of the bad stuff, right? It's kind of like being a, a cop um, where all you see is the bad stuff all the time. And, and it can really wear on you when that's what your world is surrounded by. Well, that's the first time I've ever been compared to a cop, but I'll, I'll take it if you say so. <laughs> Okay, so I'm not saying you're a cop. I'm just saying we see the same sort of stuff in our in our field. I'll, I'll go up to a cop next time I see her and say, "Hey, you and me, we're not so different." And I'll see how far. <laughs> Thin blue line, certified by CISP, like you know. Um, you know what? We'll remember this next time we travel, Javad, and we're going through customs. Okay, I want to see you do that. Yeah, no, that you know, I've learned through. Uh, that you know joking with customs and people in the airports it's 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 a tough crowd let me tell you that yeah no yeah. totally as someone who traveled on a south african passport for a very 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 long time and now actually has two passports so that opens a whole other <laughs> line of questioning yeah yeah when you're up there and you're like oh wrong passport i meant to use yeah, this sorry. one sorry that's the wrong one <laughs> yeah just open up, Step out open, of line, you know, open up a bag with like seven passports in there and like, oops, oh, oops, no. You joke, Joe, but I, I have, um, you know, our passport folder as a family has about six or seven in. 
So it literally is like, yeah, yeah, nice, very nice. <sighs> so, so let's. I'm just conscious of time now, and uh, and your time, and obviously that one of the you know three days that you have a bit of sunshine. I, I want to let you get back to that, but um. For people that are starting out, they probably think, you know, what can they do if they're interested in the career to get into the career? Or if they're just starting out, what can they do to uh, really excel and, and make a, a you know, a, a difference? <sighs> wow. And it's such a good question. And I wish there was a short, clear answer for that. I think the first thing to remember, um, information security is a very, very, very very wide field you know it's not all about the pen testing and the rev teaming it's not all about security awareness it's not all about the architecture and the design it's not all mm -hmm. about malware analysis right there is such a vast array of security stuff that goes on which means there's a lot of opportunities but it's about finding those opportunities so my best advice normally is to look for something internally. And I know that's very difficult when you're a graduate, you've maybe just studied security and you really wanna get into security. But I almost feel like any job is good enough. Like you could go um, you know, into the, the kind of traditional route, which is from tech support, you know, but it really doesn't matter. You could literally work in a hot dog stand and start building those relationships. You know, if you've got working for a small company and you're doing something completely unrelated, they might have an IT firm that comes in once in a while and, you know, update stuff. And you can just go, hey, I'm really interested in that. What have you done here? Or I've used this tool and I've noticed this and this and this, start those conversations. And especially if you're in a larger organization, you know, search out your security team, start having coffee with them, chatting to them. Um, understanding what they do, when you see problems, you know, report it to them, but very in a friendly way. Don't do what I've seen, unfortunately, where someone comes for an interview for a security position and said, well, I just tested your security, your website yesterday, and I found these vulnerabilities. What are you going to do about them? It's not the right way to go about things, but build those connections and show an interest. If there's a security champions program of any shape or form, volunteer for that, get in on that and you'll find those opportunities. I've definitely seen where we've, you know, talking about the networks and how to find the right people for the jobs, where we've picked people from other departments and kind of approached them when we've had vacancies because we like the way they think, because we like the way that they do things and, and they're good at what they do. And those are the people you want in security. Fantastic. That's a... Uh wise words great learnings i'm sure we can all take away something from that um eric what what uh, do you want to add something to that about what you learned yeah there's very important things we learned here today yeah but we don't want to hear them from eric do we so max thank you so much for being on the show with us today absolute pleasure thank you for for your time and sharing your knowledge and uh um so people can follow you on uh Twitter at MagsDJ. Um, yes, they LinkedIn. can. Uh, yes, LinkedIn. Again, try a personal message rather than a, I would like you to my add you to my professional network. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay, then. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, to our... Speaking to you. Great stuff. And to our three viewers at home, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. You've been watching The Jerry Show. And...